the speaker's table said that as the committee concluded, he would raise his leg and salute. <laughs> For those of you who didn't understand my allusion to, uh, uh, to Mr. Strachey, when you see that lovely Colonel Sanders in his white suit uh, handing out fried chicken to little children and storekeepers on television, that uh, voice with the dulcet tones urging you to come in and buy some it wins. Uh, I understand he's uh, made so much money from this that Nelson Rockefeller borrows from him now. The uh, speaker of the evening will be introduced uh, uh, by our good friend, uh, Colonel Ned Julian. Thank you, thank you. It's going to be a habit here. <clears throat> Our speaker tonight, ladies and gentlemen, is a native of Savannah who comes to Old Georgia Stock, graduated from the University of Georgia and entered the practice of law and uh, became a senior partner in probably the most, uh, the foremost firm in town. About a year and a half ago, if I recall, he was appointed, appointed the federal district judge for this district. But in spite of a busy law practice and quite a busy social life, too, he also manages to write books. Uh, some years ago, he wrote a splendid book about Revolutionary War Savannah entitled Storm Over Savannah. Uh, after that, he turned out a biography of James Moore Wayne, which he calls James Moore Wayne Southern Unionist. Uh, then he um, turned out a good Civil War book on Savannah, called uh, A Present for Mr. Lincoln. And then he's uh, prepared a little thing of his own, that the, uh, a little cherished thing of his own, about a little boy up in Georgia, and he calls this Johnny Lieber on the Confederate Major. So how he has managed to combine so busy a law practice through the years, and uh, a very busy social life, and get up early in the morning and do books is a little beyond me. So he has a good organized uh, way of living. So without further ado, I want to present Judge A. A. Lawrence of the Federal District Court. Thank you very much, Ned, and President Walden, and President-elect Lipinski, and ladies and gentlemen of the Chicago Roundtable, or members of the Chicago Round Civil War Roundtable, and other guests and visitors. Uh, anything I say is going to be a complete anticlimax after that wonderful ballad of America sung and composed by Wynn Strachey. I think it's a classic. It seems hard to believe that it was 1959 when I first spoke before this group. It's hard to believe that so many years have gone by. I remember that I talked about Sherman at Savannah, and uh, at that time I had only done about one year's research, but there was such a wealth of material, particularly among the collections in the Northwest, that it was easy to make that talk, and it later became the I believe the 15th and 16th chapters in A Present for Mr. Lincoln, which is a story of Savannah from secession to Sherman. I hope you've enjoyed your two days in Savannah. You know, we here like Savannah very much, and sometimes we think that we're the most forgotten, overlooked city in America. We think that we don't get 
credit for what we've really got here, not only historically, but in all other respects. And I'll give you a small illustration of that. Uh, 30 miles south of Savannah is a little town called Midway. And there it was founded about 1740. Around the turn of the 18th century, in 1799, a Congregationalist minister named the Reverend Abiel Holmes came to Midway, Georgia to preside over the congregation there for a few months. He stayed about one year, and then he and his wife returned to Massachusetts. Shortly after their return, a son was born to them, who became, who was named Oliver Wendell Holmes. All of which goes to show, I contend, that New England gets credit for many fine things conceived in Georgia. <laughs> People call us the state of Chatham elsewhere in uh, Georgia, but actually we are not clannish at all. And I wish to assure you that if any of you saw the cemetery called the Colonial Cemetery, there is no marker out there, no tombstone, which has on it the inscription which some people contend that it has, namely, born in Philadelphia, 1800, moved to Savannah, 1801 died at Savannah, 1899. Though a comparative stranger in our midst, he was well respected. <laughs> in the narrow circles in which he moved. <laughs> and I assure you also that uh, although we are a little bit inclined to uh, be uh, planners, perhaps, there never was in the local newspaper some many, many years ago, in fact, before the advent of the railroads, a headline in which, over an article which described a great hurricane which destroyed Scriven's Ferry. At that time, it was the only connecting link uh, by land between Savannah and South Carolina, and therefore the North and uh, North Carolina and the rest of the country. I assure you that no headline appeared in the local newspaper around 1837, which said, Scrivens Ferry Destroyed, Great Hurricane Sweeps Savannah, North America Isolated. <laughs> <laughs> well, now this, I, I probably should remake that talk that I made 11 years ago, but Colonel Julian wanted me to resurrect something that I promise you I had not, uh, I had written in eight, 1947 and probably made the talk two times in 1948 and I have not seen it since. But I looked it up and I found it and I'm going to talk about it tonight, so help me. And those, and it's terribly dated. And a lot of the things that seem funny then and seem satirical are perhaps not that way now, but it was impossible to change it and I'm not going to do it. In 1947, at the Atlanta Historical Society meeting, and Ned was for many years uh, director of that fine organization, I made a talk and I determined to make uh, a complete departure from the past. I determined on a new approach to history. I determined that too many historians were dealing with the Civil War, that too many novelists were dealing with facts, and that what we needed was a new approach to history. And uh, 
I thought that in the perspective of what might have been, rather than what was, we may, might have seen or could see history and comprehend the past better than we did. Now, as my initial experiment in 1947, I took as a testing ground the Battle of Gettysburg with the might of men's in the event that Longstreet had come up at Gettysburg. Now, before setting out on this little venture, adventure, in uh, the realm of historical fantasy and in the realm, really, of uh, satire, and I, I'm sure not many of you are like this, <laughs> it is necessary to review what actually happened at Gettysburg and what followed the great defeat of General Lee there. Uh, in the spring of 1863, the South was a beleaguered fortress. Hooker's army was threatening Richmond. At Vicksburg, Grant's forces gnawed at the very vitals of the Confederacy. Uh, to relieve the Confederate camp, as well as to secure adequate supplies for the Army of uh, Northern Virginia, the Southern leaders determined to carry the war into the enemy territory. And for that purpose, General Lee had available in the Army of Northern Virginia, a superb fighting force of 70,000 tribe veterans in which he reposed the highest confidence, believing that even without the lamented Stonewall's action, it could accomplish almost anything. Now against this background, in the summer of 1963, the campaign in the North was planned. Essentially, the Northern campaign was to be of a, a diversionary rather than decisive nature. But the quarrel was even a larger one in some eyes. It is recorded by one witness that General Lee, pointing to the little town of Gettysburg on the map, remarked, Hereabout we probably shall meet the enemy and fight a great battle, and if God gives us victory, the war will be over and we will achieve the recognition of our independence. However, an ominous diversion of opinion existed on Lee's staff. General James Longstreet had opposed the campaign from the first insisted that if undertaken at all, it should be defensive in nature and that no general engagement should be fought. Well, we all know how Lee's gray-clad divisions crossed the Potomac in June, marched into the rolling farmlands of Pennsylvania, and converged on the little village of Gettysburg. We've heard how the cavalry forces under General Stewart, which had been detached from the main army on June the 24th, failed to maintain communication with Lee's main army, depriving the Confederate commander of adequate knowledge of the movements of the federal troops. It is to an old story how the Army of Northern Virginia, Virginia stumbled upon Meade's advance units at Gettysburg late on July the 1st, 1863, and how in the first shock of battle, victory rolled with the Confederacy. We know that Lee planned on the next day to seize the Fishhook Ridges, commanding the town to the south and southeast, which were then only weakly held by Meade's forces. Historians tell us that General Longstreet strongly disapproved Lee's plan of battle, resenting the fact that his own plan of, uh, a, uh, of a strategic offensive and tactical defensive, defensive had been rejected. We've been told how on the early morning of July the 2nd, the Union troops on the ridges near Cemetery Hill, which Longstreet was expected to attack that morning, were still not formidable in number. From able students of that campaign, we learned that the early hours of the battle of the, uh, of the day passed while Longstreet dallied 
and we impatiently watched more and more federal troops arrive. Nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, Longstreet still was not in position. 11 o'clock, noon, whatever can detain Longstreet, said Lee. The early afternoon hours passed, and the Confederate attack is still not mounted. The green of the ridges had become blue. Not until five o'clock did word reach Lee that Longstreet was in position. The Confederate lines advanced. Ground has gained a fearful cost, but when night closed in, the battered soldiers of the Confederacy had failed to dislodge the enemy from the hills. The rest of the chapter I know all too well. How on the third, the long gray lines of the Confederacy rolled up the ridges occupied by the enemy and then rolled back. How beautiful Stephen Vincent Benet has expressed it in those great lyrics in John Brown's body, the South King and Picket King and the end came, and the grass comes, and the wind blows over the bronze book, over the bronze man, over the grown grass, and the wind says, long ago, long ago. Well, from Gettysburg, the gray line fell back to Virginia, back to the siege of Richmond, to gradual attrition, and the bitter end, and with the laughter, our collapse of the Confederacy came the long, hard days of northern vengeance, reconstruction, sectional poverty, political prescription, economic vassalism and provincial status with the southern people the eternal shipping boy a whipping boy and scapegoat of the dominant section of the union now all of these things we learn from history but what history does not tell us is what the south what america might have been would have been the day had long street come up at the right time on that fateful day long long ago and now i offer this brief not too brief, but unbiased history of the American states. <laughs> Since the early morning of July the 2nd, 1863, when Long Street, when these veterans stormed the hills that overlooked the historic little Pennsylvania village. Here we go. Stirred by their successes on the afternoon of July the 1st, the slumbers of Lee's men were broken by dreams of the north. What would it bring? What would be the result of a day so pregnant with import to the future of the Confederate States, to the North, to the American continent, to the very world indeed? Would there be two republics in America? Would Washington or Richmond be the American capital? At the Council of War that night, General Longstreet still disapproved of a general offensive engagement, but Lee pointing over toward Cemetery Ridge, toward Little Round Top and Culp Hill, names soon to become so ominous in the textbooks of the North, had declared, if the enemy is there, we must attack him. And Longstreet had yielded. Returning to his command, he ordered the first corps brought up as rapidly as possible. That night, between the, beneath the pale moon that lit the wheat fields of Pennsylvania, the columns of Hill and Mac, Hood and MacLaws moved out. The coming of dawn on July the 2nd, 1863, found the gray battalions shaping for battle along the slopes from which they would advance. It was barely 8 o'clock. Uh, when the thunder of Longstreet gun, Longstreet's guns near Cemetery Hill sounded the signal for the attack. Within an hour after a bloody engagement, Ewell was in possession of Culp's Hill in the Peach Orchard. Lee had directly surmised that Cemetery Ridge had not been reinforced, but at Devil Dam, Devil's Dam, and Little and Big Round Top, there was tenacious resistance. However, the grip of the Federals along the ridge was broken. By noon, the battle flags of the Confederacy dominated the rising ground southeast of Gettysburg. The Union forces had been shaken. 
East of the ridges, the roads were choked with blue columns moving up from the south. For the Union, the situation was discouraged, but not irreparable, at least Meade so conceived. It was late in the day before the counterattack was ready. In the gathering dust, the blue lines fought, sought again and again to retrieve the ground which Longstreet had won that morning. But when the sun had set over the bloody field of Gettysburg, the Army of the Potomac was badly hurt. At great cost, the South had hurt held in the edge. What would Meade do? To retreat upon Baltimore, Philadelphia, or Washington after a crushing defeat in Pennsylvania would be to give such aid and comfort to Dagen, that Dagen and the clamorous Copperhead Party would be to raise the prestige of the Confederacy with England and France so much that withdrawal seemed out of the question. Yet equally fit was it to continue the attack tomorrow. Meanwhile, late on the second, the wandering Jeb Stewart had arrived with his cavalry. Meade had withdrawn his line about a mile to the east. From an all-night staff meeting, he emerged from his headquarters at daybreak on the 3rd to head a fateful roll of guns near the great Baltimore turnpike toward the southeast. Galloping up, an exciting, excited courier reported that Stewart had crossed the left flank of the Union forces during the night and was at Tawnytown, supported by Confederate infantry, ominously threatening the Federal rail. The order for a general retreat was given. The roads panning east from Gettysburg were clogged with troop trains. Withdrawal was a difficult maneuver. As soon as the retreat of the Union forces became a certainty, Lee's troops debouched from the hills, falling upon the remnants of the Corps which were assigned to protect the rear of Meade's retreating forces. By 4 o'clock, disorganization had become chaos. By 5, road had become disaster. General Meade himself was taken prisoner. It was Waterloo all over. The proud army of the Potomac was no more. Remnants would escape to Hanover, but not to fight again as a coherent military force. Of a magnificent army of 80,000, 35,000 Union troops were dead and wounded, and 25,000 were prisoners leave. Isn't this great? <laughs> <laughs> But Manassas had been arrived, and the North had returned more determined than ever. From disaster at Fredericksburg, the Union had rebounded in still greater strength. A great battle had been fought in Pennsylvania. A stupendous defeat inflicted on the enemy, yet could an army which had sustained such losses as Lee's be humanly expected to take advantage of its victory before Union replacements took the field. Lee acted with matchless precision and promptness. The seat of Union arrogance. Washington, I've changed my mind since I became a federal judge. <laughs> <laughs> Washington, D.C. must be the main goal to strangle the Midwest the second. <laughs> To divide his forces in the heart of the enemy's country under other conditions might be reckless folly, yet that is what Lee did. Already the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad and the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal had been cut by the Confederacy. The North seethed with fear. Rioting was universal. In Washington, panic was a mild term for the state of mind of the politicians who since 1861 had polluted the once sacred precincts of the capital of the American Federation. <laughs> Lincoln promptly ordered all Union troops in Virginia and West Virginia to fall back on Washington. 
The northern capital was invested by Lee. The long siege commenced. By mid-September, the defenders had been reduced to a diet of horse meat. <laughs> Newspapers were printed on wallpaper. <laughs> Two weeks before the fall of Washington, President Lincoln was captured by a Confederate scouting party near Martinsburg. This well-known episode has been the subject of exaggeration by some historians. Undoubtedly, Mr. Lincoln availed himself of the Underground Railway in attempting to escape, escape from the besieged capital. But there is no factual basis for the oft-repeated canard that the President was recognized through his disguise of a runaway slave by an alert Confederate private who had once seen his profile on a unit of currency. <laughs> In the party with Lincoln was a notorious Thad Stevens, an appropriate commentary on the character of the man who had grandiosely announced to Congress that he would die in the rubble of the Capitol before he would suffer capture by the Confederates. No historian of this period can pass, and I say this as a, as a very uh, unbiased historian, <laughs> over this bizarre chapter of history without contemplating for a moment the strange career Mr. Abraham Lincoln. This gaunt and lonely man, the victim of his incompetent generals, must be numbered among the more tragic figures of history, groping from mistake to mistake, attempting to substitute patience and droll stories for decision and energy. Lincoln is a very symbol of northern blundering in the war between the states. He would live out his years quietly on the prairies, rationalizing his mistakes and arguing in fine-spun Union theory the archaic notion that a federal union which had been utterly subverted from the ideas of the founding fathers was indissoluble and perpetual. Today is the anniversary on which General Halleck, well, it wasn't today, signed the terms of capitulation. Fiddly, fittingly enough, the capitulation took place aboard the famous Confederate Man of War, Alabama, which had just completed an epic cruise to home waters for that purpose. Meanwhile, the Confederate forces left in Pennsylvania had maintained their grip on the approaches to the West. Despite vicious attacks by the new militia levies called up in the North, they had held the vital line of the Susquehanna, but the North was still far from subdued. For the coming invasion of the Deep North, every able-bodied man in the Confederacy had been mustered in the service. The astute Davis realized all too long that as long as the double disciples of abolition held sway in the cesspool that was New England, the Confederacy could never be secure. On February the 22nd, 1864, Lee's army, now 100 strong, 100,000 strong, crossed the Delaware. On the same day, President Davis delivered his famous Gettysburg Address, beginning with those lines so well that every schoolboy in the Confederacy Four score and seven years ago, <laughs> our forefathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation dedicated to the proposition that not all men are born free <laughs> and few men are born equal, <laughs> all being endowed by the Creator with unequal degrees of blame and industry. <laughs> I will not read the rest of that 10,000 word address. <laughs> <laughs> but let us return to the Confederate Army which we left crossing the Delaware. 
New York City was expected to offer a fierce, perhaps fatal resistance to these veterans, but the South was to find many friends there. To the economic nabobs of the city, who had fattened so long on the slave trade and the terror, peaceful surrender, the sparing of their mansions and their canning houses from the fortune cannon were all important. Nevertheless, one group of diehard Republicans, ordering their carriage men and valets into the fray, offered a stout resistance, which only ended when their spirit was broken by the capture of their stronghold, the Union League Club. <laughs> The surrender of Brooklyn was delayed for several days by the difficulty the Confederates encountered in finding any officials in that city who could conduct the ne negotiations in English. <laughs> you always stop by this. <laughs> it gets worse and worse. <laughs> Longstreet celebrated March to the Sea. <laughs> <laughs> Commenced the following month. Silhouetted by the bonfires of the village, farms, and sweatshops <laughs> of Connecticut, Massachusetts, the soldiers of the Confederacy sung, swung through the bleak New England countryside. Aristocrats from the great plantations, farmer boys from Georgia, Mountaineers with rifles, their forebears had carried at King's Mountain, Creoles from the Delaware country, dark, brawling Texans, all drawn together in freedom with great cause. I love that song, Sonny. <laughs> <laughs> the gray tide was to roll irresistibly to the sea along the line of the New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad. The old central Georgia, they ruined it. <laughs> exactly one year after Gettysburg, Boston fell to General John B. Gordon of Georgia, a good soldier, but a little careless with fire. <laughs> His name is now the very incarnation of deviltry in the minds of the daughters of the G.A.R. <laughs> and July the 4th, 1864, Bob Toombs of Georgia called the world of his slaves on the steps of Fenero Hall. <laughs> to President Longstreet, I mean to President Davis, Longstreet uh, dispatched this famous telegram. I beg to present you as a 4th of July gift, <laughs> the city of Boston with 25,000 cans of baked beans, 150 tons of cod, and Harvard Law School. <laughs> But the South had no quarrel with the West, and I don't with you all at all. You can see that. <laughs> a unity of interest actually existed. The abolitionists had skillfully driven the opprobrious epithet of slavery as a wedge between the South and the Midwest. Westerners who had seen Sarah Grant had seen for themselves that slavery was essentially a benign form of master-servant relations. <laughs> Good thing I didn't make the speech when Judge Cosmo did. <laughs> 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 Which of course was more beneficent than the grinding labor system the East had used uh, uh, in perverting to an attempt to destroy a peace-loving section of the Union. In a cabinet meeting, 
the great President Davis, pointing significantly to New Orleans, counseled that the Western states be left well enough alone, sagaciously observing that the mandates of geography would eventually bring the Midwest into the Confederacy. His words proved prophetic. The brief and unhappy career of the North, Northwest Republic under the dictatorship of General William T. Sherman, with the South consistently refusing to yield a corridor to the sea, was terminated by a plea for admission into the Confederacy during the administration of President Longstreet. Today, <laughs> there are no more loyal members of the Confederacy than the people of the Midwest. <laughs> Southerners are proud of the many Lee and Jack Davis counties and insurance companies of that name in that section. <laughs> but let us return to the North in 1865. The Eastern states now occupied the status of conquered territory. The urgency of reestablishing democracy among the people who had wandered so far from the teachings of George Mason made it clear that thorough and immediate reconstruction of the North was an indispensable necessity. With its solid pattern of living, symbolized by the flesh pot and the slum, the North must be re-educated to the principles of the Republic when it was young. To the long-suffering laborer of New England and New York, Gettysburg afforded a welcome redistribution of economic opportunity. During the Reconstruction era, the freedman was always the constant object of Confederate solicitude, particularly around election time. <laughs> the slogan, 40 spindles and a loom, became a famous one. <laughs> the rapid decline of the North during the 60s and 70s witnessed a corresponding growth in the South. Freed from the tariff, the South entered a flourishing era where the Confederacy's emphasis on states' rights Business has not been throttled by centralization of government. In the Confederate States, a bureau still represents an article of bedroom furniture. Yeah, <laughs> 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 well, this thing's so dated, it may, almost makes me cry to read it after 22 years. <laughs> the 40-hour week means that an employee must work a minimum of 40 hours. <laughs> There is no such word as union, and a strike is what pitches throwing baseball. This industrial revolution in the South saw sleepy southern towns mushroom in the cities. When we see the huge metropol met metropolis of metropolis of Atlanta, a bare century old, with a population of six million people, we wonder too that it was ever the village of Marthasville. And what a far cry is a great bustling port of Savannah with its one million inhabitants and its harbor teeming with the world's shipping. What a difference from the Red River with a tranquil little fleet of merchantmen that William Makepeace Thackeray saw here in 1856. Savannah is, of course, as all of you know, the eastern terminus of the transcontinental Central Georgia Railroad, which runs to Los Angeles. <laughs> Detroit takes pride in boasting that it is a Birmingham of the South, and Southerners smile tolerantly when West Point is called the Citadel of the North. <laughs> After the war, the South had turned more and more to industry and away from the raising of cotton and magnolias and the production of mint juleps. 
singular impetus occurred in that direction in the early 70s. How were the wayward northern states to pay the enormous reparations which simple justice to the South demanded? This dilemma was solved by the well-known Relief Act of 1871. Under it, the North was relieved of all heavy industries adapted to aggressive warfare. The era of Reconstruction takes its name from the dismantling of the factories in the North and their reconstruction in the South. <laughs> in 1947, the North is still the number one economic problem of the Confederate States of America. The great Southern weekly magazines and newspapers are constantly holding up the people of that section to scorn, unable to comprehend the race riots, gangster, gangsterism, and the barbaric accents of that region. Candid Yankees of the present generation are the first to admit the validity of the greater of this criticism. Yet there is a feeling in the South that the North, bad as it undoubtedly is, is not yet beyond redemption. If the people of that section will only go back to work <laughs> and raise their per capita income to the confederal average, much benefit will undoubtedly result to the American economy. Competent observers see that day coming, and it is nothing less than the just desert of a people who most Southerners are willing to admit have come up a long way from ruin and ignorance. <laughs> However, leveling influences are undoubtedly at work in the New North. Governor Dewey is an up-and-coming young man who no longer lives in the musty past of the North. Railroad rape discrimination against the North is the political stock and trade of this able Whig statement who frankly tells his constituents that it is time to rejoin the Confederacy. This burgeoning spirit has spread to the Midwest. Ohio is neat even now, suggesting a candidate for the presidency. Gettysburg is still too close to our day for a New Yorker or an Ohio to hope for national political success. But it is an encouraging sign for sectional goodwill that such a suggestion can be seriously made. It is to be even hoped that New England will someday develop a lawyer well enough versed in strict constitutional construction to win nomination to the Supreme Court. <laughs> in the field of world affairs, the foreign policy of the Confederate States, dominated by the matchless statesmen of the South, has enjoyed conspicuous success. A confederation which had its bloodbath in the uh, at its birth in the bloodbath of aggression has ever been watchful of tyranny, whether in New England or Moscow. Presidents from a section which were overrun by the Vandals in the 60s has been zealous in guiding affairs so that it can never happen again. The hanging of Hitler by the Confederacy when he marched into the rear has set an example which no dictator dares test. <coughs> Stalin speaks Russian with a southern accent. South Georgia, that is. Our hero majored in Confederate history at the University of Georgia. Having been forced to fight one war to make our land safe for democracy, in the course of which the South played host to the Visigoths of Indiana and Wisconsin, and the Vandals of New England, the Confederate states have never tolerated conditions which might lead to a repetition. Small wonder, therefore, that July the 3rd is celebrated as a great Confederate holiday, 
a day on which post offices and banks are closed from Tidy Lake to Puget Sound. We have much to be thankful for in this bright and happy land, but most of all, let us express our thanks for the fact that a general named Longstreet came up at the right moment on a hot July morning long, long ago. <laughs> Down a 
affection's cloudless sky. A hundred months have passed, Lorena, since last I held that hand in And felt the pulse beat fast, Lorena Though mine beat faster far than thine A hundred months twas flowery May When up the hill Slope we climbed Oh, to watch The dying of the dead And hear the distant church bells chime Oh. 